You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit corin.com. Hello, welcome to Japan Eats. I'm your host, Akiko Tema, a food writer and the director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from Brooklyn, New York. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every day on the supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi, ramen, izakaya, but what is that exactly are they? Japanese food is still mystery for many people, and I try to demystify it in this program, my cool guests. And my guest today is Prairie Stuart Wolf, who is a writer and photographer, and what I would call cultural communicator, based in a rural countryside village called Mirukashi on Japan's southern island of Kyushu. Since Prairie moved to Mirukashi in 2007, she has been deepening her interest in Japanese food through the beautiful surrounding nature. You can find her precious life in the village on her website, Cultivated Days. So, today we'll discuss how Prairie ended up moving to Japan, how the village of Mirukashi inspired her to study Japanese cuisine, the essence of Japanese cuisine Prairie wants to share with others, her unique cultural tours、um, that you can participate, and much, much more. But before we start, Japan Needs is available on the Heritage Radio Network website. As well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, whichever you listen to, and subscribe to Japan Needs. And please write a review. We really appreciate your feedback. Now, let's start a conversation with Prairie Stuart Wolf. Hello, Prairie. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be with you today. Yeah. So actually, we originally met in, I recall, 2016 at the Pottery Fair. By your wife and Porter、uh, Hanako Nakazato. And it's、yes. very nice speaking with you again. So, yeah, it's been a long time. And that was great. Hey, and、uh, so I heard you've been in Maine to escape from the hot Japanese summer. So, how have you been in Maine? It's been a glorious summer in Maine. It's been really special here,、um, beautiful. So, I'm originally from New England, and we try to spend a few months a year here just so I can come back to the States and reconnect with family and friends. And as you said, Japan is a little bit unbearable in the summer, and New England is beautiful in the summer, so it's the perfect time to come here.、Mm, right. Okay, so,、uh, so let's start my questions. So, to get to know you、uh, mm-hmm. better, even, where are you from? And、uh, I mean, New England, but、uh, what did you eat when you grew up? Yeah, so I grew up in southern Vermont,、um, so I'm a New England girl. And New England's climate is, you know, beautiful and warm in the summer and very cold and snowy in the winter.、Um, so, my memories of childhood were an abundance of fresh produce in the summer. My mom was an avid gardener. She grew tons of herbs and vegetables. So, we were always eating out of the garden in the summer.、Um, and then in the winter, you head more into, you know, the warm, comfortable foods like soups and stews and fresh bread and various meats roasted in the oven. So, very typical New England fare. 
Mm, like sounds like you're not too far away from what you are eating now, but um, I think Kyushu is much hotter. So yeah, that's a big difference. Yes, right, right. <laughs> so, uh, and what was your first encounter with Japan and uh, how did you end up living in Japan? I know it's a big question. Yes, it is, multiple parts. Um, so I met my wife, Hanako, here in the States. And so my first real encounter with Japan was when she took me over there to visit. And I think I'm going to say that was 2003 or 2004, so quite a long time ago. Um, and we went over for about three weeks. We spent most of that time with her family in Karatsu and Kyushu, um, and then traveled around a little bit, spent a few days in Tokyo. But that was really my first encounter with Japan and even with Japanese culture, I would say. It was not a country that I had learned much about before going, and um, so it was all brand new to me. Mm, right. And uh, so your wife, uh, I mentioned before, uh, is a well-established potter, Hanako mm-hmm. Nakazato. And who is she and how did you guys meet? Because I think it's important to know her, to understand your fascinating life story here. So, Absolutely. I mean, she is the reason that I now have this life in Japan. Um, she came to the States when she was in high school. So she has lived in the United States for much of her life. Um, at least half of it or so. But she actually returned to Karatsu to apprentice with her father when she decided to become a potter. Um, And then she moved back to the States and she was working with Malcolm Wright in his pottery studio in southern Vermont. And I was living there at the time. So it's really how we met was just through a mutual group of friends when we were both living in Vermont. Mm, Right. Okay. And um, so... Yeah, so now you live in Nirukashi in Saga Prefecture on the Kyushu island of Japan. So how do you describe Nirukashi and what kind of place is it? Right, so first I think it's important to clarify that Nirukashi, if you look for it on the map, you'll have a hard time finding it because what it is is actually an old hamlet in the town of Karatsu. So Karatsu is really our main municipality. And over time, the town of Karatsu has grown as it sort of incorporated what used to be very small independent villages. So Karatsu is on the Sea of Japan. It's in northwestern Kyushu. Um, And Mirukashi is away from the sea, kind of up in the hills. And all of Karatsu, including Mirukashi, is really agricultural farmland. So we are surrounded by tea fields, farm fields, um, lots of rice growing in our area as well. And then, you know, typical sort of jungly woods that Japan's rural countryside is famous for. Lots of um, cedar and cypress trees. And it's very much the countryside of Japan. Mm, Right. I actually looked up the, I was so curious how big it is. And uh, Milkas itself, uh, not the Karatsu, but this village, as of 2015, only 337 people. It's a village. It's tiny. (laughs) It's, yeah, it's really just sort of the piece of a valley and then the hills on either side of it are this tiny. But, you know, in the past, um, Japan's villages were very, very small and, and quite removed geographically from each other. Um, so it's neat that it still has that local um, identity, even though we're now part of a much larger city. Mm, hey, it was really tempting. I really wanted to visit when I'm looking up. It's a beautiful little place yeah. and uh, everybody wants to visit and uh, so you you really got lucky to meet uh, you know Hanako Nakazato in the first place. So, I sure did yeah when you decide you'll just move to your partner's hometown it's quite a leap and I'm lucky that she was from such a beautiful area. 
You know, I had no idea where it was. So the first time I heard it. And uh, so I looked up, you know, the Google map. And then mm-hmm. Hanako's uh, family pottery uh, is the biggest um, name in town, in the village. So Yes. <laughs> so yes. Her, family. Her, her family is very well established in Karatsu in the field of pottery. Um, her father, her brother, um, pretty much any uncle or cousin you meet, many of them are potters. Mm, right. Okay, so it's her DNA. Um, mm-hmm. Although I heard Absolutely. she wanted to be a professional tennis player. <laughs> yeah, that was the original reason she came to the States was to pursue tennis um, mm. and eventually let go of that while she was in college. And then um, she had an interesting story in that being away from Japan, I think she really came to understand the parts of the culture that she valued and she took a renewed interest mm. in her own family history and in her own culture um, and decided that she was interested in pottery. Um, mm-hmm. So she went back to work with her father. Interesting, very interesting. And uh, so um, I would imagine that you are not, uh, there are not many non-Japanese people living in Mirugashi, right? So so mm-hmm. when you moved to the village of Mirugashi, <laughs> h- how did you feel? You know, it's a village of 300 plus people, uh, this small area, and do you have any plans or what are you gonna do there? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so when we went, uh, one of the main reasons we decided to move there was that Hanako was, you know, establishing her career as a potter, but um, as I'm sure you're well aware that at the time, um, there was much more opportunity in Japan. It's really a part of the culture to purchase, to gift, to use handmade pottery in your daily life. Um, So she was sending a lot of her work back to Japan for exhibitions. And it was starting to feel a little bit untenable. So she decided to build a studio there with the idea that maybe we would spend part of each year there and she could do production and have exhibitions. So when I went with her, I was really only intending to go for about a year. Um, And that was over 15 years ago. Um, Mm. But when I got there, I will say I was both enchanted and overwhelmed. And overwhelmed because I didn't speak any Japanese at the time. And as you mentioned, there really aren't any other non-native people living in the area. Um, So I was surrounded by a language and a culture that felt extremely new and hard to understand at the time. Um, But I was also enchanted because it really reminded me of the countryside, you know, the rural landscape that I grew up in and in which I feel really comfortable. And her family was very warm and welcoming to me. so it was a wonderful experience, but certainly there were days when I was sort of just trying to keep my head above water <laughs> to figure mm. out where I was and, and how to proceed. Mm. I, I'm sure you, you love smile, but I, I'm sure it was very challenging, like at yes. least <laughs> first time. Um, right. Okay. And then um, I just want to mention, you know, you, you said the Karatsu city, but Mirukashi is a part of um, Karatsu city, city, which is famous mm-hmm. for Korobi, of course, in particular, uh, karatsu yaki. Yes. So yes. could you tell us what karatsu yaki is and why it is so famous? Sure. So um, karatsu yaki, just in terms of its aesthetics, it's generally um, earthenware. So it has, you know, mostly muted tones, very earthy feel, kind of a rough clay body. Um, sometimes it is decorated with brushwork. In You know, they depict kind of natural motifs. It could be some plants or um, birds, that kind of a thing. Um, And originally, it was a very simple style of pottery. It was really sort of unpretentious, very um, subtle, and mostly just 
purposed for daily use for tableware. Um, but over time, it became favored for use in tea ceremony. And I think that's where its reputation really grew and it became really well known. Um, there's a phrase that goes first otaku, second hagi, third karatsu. And that phrase describes the styles of pottery that are highly valued in tea ceremony. Um, so it's really well known as for tea bowls, for tea utensils, um, as pieces that people collect and take interest in. Mm, I, I like uh, karachiyake because it's so warm and um, mm -hmm. it's not, you know, like luxurious or shiny thing. It's just like we want to have it and use it every day. It's very calming. It, it is. It's very inviting to the hand, inviting to the table. Um, you feel very comfortable reaching for it and using it every day. Mm, right. And one another thing I, I learned is that Hanako's grandfather is known for reviving the reputation of Karacheki mm -hmm. uh, through the 20th century. And um, he was awarded the status of a living national treasure yes, in 1976. <laughs> it's just the highest one I can think of <laughs> as an artist. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. And then another reason I wanted to talk about Karacheki. So it's really um, one of the examples that, you know, um, if you go to Japan, it's so worth visiting countryside or the different regions to find local ceramics like karatsuyaki. And uh, each style reflects the history and the local culture. And of course, mm -hmm. um, they're so beautiful. And, um, you know, you can buy it for yourself as a souvenir or you can just make a special gift to someone. So, yeah, it's fun. And I think it's uh, once you get there. Yeah, it's really fun. And I think it's a really great way to sort of understand the local culture by the aesthetics of the pottery they use. Um, I think our region is really interesting because we have Karatsu Yaki and Karatsu where we live. And then, you know, only 30 or 40 minutes away, you have Arika, which is well known for porcelain. So even in a very small region, you can see a lot of very distinct styles. Mm. Right. And the Kyushu is a photo of those beautiful um, tableware's. Mm -hmm. Of course. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. And um, so let's talk about your life. So you have multiple unique activities in Mirukashi, and, and that all center around Japanese food culture. So how did mm -hmm. you get, it, get into Japanese food? Yeah, so it was, um, you know, I've always been interested in food. I've loved eating. I watched my mother grow, you know, a lot of our food growing up. So I've always been very aware of it. Um, but I wasn't particularly knowledgeable about Japanese food when I moved there. Um, and I think the way I really dove into it was just sort of circumstances in that, as I mentioned, I didn't speak Japanese when I moved there. Um, and in the first months of living there and getting our house, you know, finished and getting moved in, we often ate with Hanako's parents. And meals at their house go on for hours and hours, and it's a wonderful feast of flavors. So I was in these very long meals every night, but I couldn't participate in the conversations. So I just found myself studying the food, studying the flavors. Um, and there were so many unfamiliar and interesting ingredients, you know, things that I really hadn't tasted before, like burdock root or lotus root or bitter melon or sort of all these great flavors. And there was a richness, but a clarity and a lightness to the food. Um, and I just fell in love with it. And I had a lot of time sort of in my own head with the dishes presented each night to enjoy them and to study them and to get really interested in how they were made and where the ingredients came from. Mm -hmm. Right. Sounds like you got lucky for that reason too, because it sounds like you had a lot of local uh, fresh ingredients, which you may not yes. find everywhere, like big cities in Tokyo, somewhere like that. 
So, right, and entering a family who are, um, you know, while they're eating dinner, they're deciding what they're going to have for lunch the next day. So the food <laughs> is this, the topic of conversation at all times. They're very enthusiastic. So I got right. very lucky. <laughs> right. Okay. And um, uh, so and I heard also that you learned Japanese cooking from your mother-in-law, Anako's mm-hmm. mother. So what did you learn from her, except that, you know, her attitude and passion for Japanese food or the food in general? Sounds mm-hmm. like a sheet of far beyond technical skills. Absolutely. Um, so I think initially, I, you know, I really wanted to get to know her because we lived very close to her. She's a very important person in Hanako's life. Um, but I couldn't speak to her at first. So I just spent a lot of time with her in the kitchen um, watching her, you know, helping out as I could. And that was sort of how I started to see how dishes were put together, how she treated ingredients and the, the technical part of cooking. Um, but what I really was most impressed with when I watched her cook was the sort of balance of value she had between economy and elegance. You know, I would see her do wonderful things like peel a carrot so that the color would be vibrant and the edges would be clean and it would be really beautiful but then she would never throw away the peels. She would dry them and stir fry them for kimpira, or she would put them in her nukazuke and make pickles out of them. And so I just saw this way that day after day, she was really honoring the ingredients and honoring the food and trying to make the most beautiful dishes she could, but without wasting anything. And that made a big impression on me. And I think that is what is the lasting impression. And that's how I try to live my life now as well. Mm, right. Yeah, we are given uh, food from nature, so we mm-hmm. shouldn't waste anything. That's like very Japanese yes. um, economical mindset. And it's not just that, it's like a respect. And we um, end up having more nutrition because skins tend to have um, great nutritional values, which That's we right. tend to overlook. So. so often the best parts are, are thrown away for the sake of making something lovely. But in fact, those are like you say, some of the most important parts of the ingredients. Mm, right. Okay, so uh, we'll take a quick break here, and when we come back, we'll discuss previous unique cultural tours that you can join in Mirukashi. So please stay with us. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese ship knives and restaurant supplies. Koin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant, from French to Pan-Asian to American, and that is why they are located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Koin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view the exquisitely designed tableware and the wireless natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services, from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table, so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit corin.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Needs on HRN, Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Saki Katayama, and my guest today is Prairie Stuart Wolf, who is a writer and photographer and what I would call a cultural communicator based in rural countryside village called the Mirukashi 
on Japan's southern island of Kyushu. So, uh, yeah, so you offer um, hosted travel programs to take your guests to special destinations such as Karatsu and Kyoto. So could you tell us about the programs? Sure. So this is a series of programs I started um, pre-COVID before Japan was closed um, in collaboration with Ace Camps, which is a travel company in Vancouver, Canada. Um, and what I did was crafted itineraries in both Karatsu and Kyoto that were very food and culture um, centered itineraries. So we eat many different styles of food going out to different kinds of restaurants. We had some specialty workshops with chefs, uh, meeting people who are experts in their field in food, whether that be farmers or fishermen or people brewing. Um, so I call it hosted travel because it's sort of bringing people around and creating a connection for people to um, talk to, to see sort of the inside of the food culture in Japan. Mm, right. I really think it's a valuable experience because you can go to different places, but without a specific interaction, like personal mm-hmm. connections, um, it's, it's hard to really get into it. So It is, yes. It's great to have a guide. Mm. So you're going to start restart again? Because uh, Japan is opening as of tomorrow, right? Fully open yes, the country I mean, again. Yeah. As we speak, yes, it's amazing. Um, yes, yeah, so we're going to restart those programs with ACE um, that run in both the spring and the fall in both Karatsu and um, Kyoto, as well as start up some new mm. programs. Right. Okay, so uh, we'll get the more details on your website. Um, so now uh, I heard you're studying a new program called Mirukashi Salon. So what is it? Right, so the Mirukashi Salon is actually, it's a dream I've had for many, many years to um, host very intimate gathers at my home in Mirukashi, which is hence the name, the Mirukashi Salon. Um, so they are going to be uh, specifically tailored to the season. I'll offer them six times a year. Um, and each one consists of a five-day session, and part of it is, I would call, culinary workshop. So we'll gather seasonal ingredients, we'll go to markets, um, we'll visit the fishmonger. When the season is appropriate, we'll actually go out and forage as well. And then we'll roll up our sleeves and we'll cook meals together, and we'll talk about presentation, and we'll talk about you know dining together, we'll sit down and eat those meals together. And then each session will also include some sort of seasonally tailored specialty program. And that's a place where my guests can meet an expert in the field. And that could be um, a specialty workshop, like making sweets with a wagashi master, or it could be going to a brewery to learn how soy is brewed. Um, Each one will be specific to the season. Mm, Right. And what I read on your website, it's only up to six people. So, yes. right? so it's going to be a very personal experience. Yeah, I really wanted to keep it very intimate so that we really can engage with each other. Um, you know, part of my reasoning for calling it a salon is that I really want this to be uh, a cultural exchange, a time when we can have deep conversations and talk about cultural perspectives on food, on dining, um, on all sorts of things. So it's really a place for entertainment and fun, but also a place for learning and um enlightenment of some sort mm, right and uh, I really think it's uh, valuable for people who provide those um, kind of party program like fishmongers and all those people who have mm. a lot of passion and knowledge and they never probably have opportunities to 
talk to strangers and then, you know, actually show mm -hmm. what they do. Um, yeah, and I'm sure you have great connections with those people, right? I do, you know, especially a lot of people in my community, the people I get my ingredients from and, you know, the chefs at my favorite restaurants. We really, living in such a small community, we've all gotten to know each other well. Um, so they're great connections. And you're right, that is another reason I wanted to keep the group small is because when I've taken larger groups, um, there's not as much time or opportunity for me to help my guests actually have a conversation with the people mm. we're visiting. And I hope with this smaller group, there'll be that opportunity. If my guests have questions or want to learn more, um, you know, I can help translate and really facilitate uh, an interaction between people. Mm. I'm super curious about, you know, maybe you can talk about some of those people, your friends, who's going to mm -hmm. participate. They have like fishmongers or the chef, or maybe you can give sure. us Sure, like a few examples, yeah. Um, one of them that I'm most excited about, um, I'm going to offer a session in mid-February called First Spring, and we are actually going to travel over to Saga City. So Karatsu is in Saga Prefecture, um, and we're going to travel to Saga City, which is about an hour away, and it's on the Ariake Sea, which is where some of Japan's best nori is grown. Um, and I have a wonderful relationship with uh, aqua farmer there, as well as a nori expert and distributor there. So we have this incredible opportunity to actually get on a boat and go out and see the fields where nori is grown in this vast tidal area. Um, and so it's a very specialty ingredient. It's a very interesting winter delicacy. Um, and it's something that very few people, including people in Japan, get to actually see in person. So that's one I'm very excited about. Mm, actually, I've never done it before. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's unusual. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, the perception and seaweed is like weed, right, in mm -hmm. the Western society. But actually, you see it, how it's beautifully prepared mm -hmm. and how it changes, how it looks from the ocean to right. on your table, which is mm -hmm. big, amazing transformation. So Yes. Yeah, the first time I saw it, I couldn't believe it because when you sort of deal with dry nori at the table or in the kitchen, um, it looks nothing like it. It is as a plant to growing out in the water. Mm -hmm. Right. Any other person you want to talk about? Yeah, so um, another thing that we're going to do in autumn, during an autumn session, is visit a soy brewer who lives in Itoshima, which is about 40 minutes away. Um, and he's a lovely young... Well, a uh, man who's basically taken over his father's brewery, but he's really changed the style of brewing. Um, he's gone back to using traditional wooden barrels, um, focusing on very simple, pure ingredients. And he's brewing a kind of soy. Uh, Kyushu soy is known as very sweet soy, but he's brewing um, a more traditional kind that is you know, just umami-based and very rich. Um, so he's a really interesting man because he has the family heritage, but he's also doing something in a new way. And yet his new way kind of harkens back to the past. Mm, right. I see that even in other industries, like for example, sake industries, they people go back to old style, not for the sake of going back, but for they realize it creates even better taste experience, regardless of how much work and time it takes. So mm -hmm. yeah, it's a really good um, I wouldn't say trend, but the little movement to actually evaluate uh, what's the best 
value they can create. And then I think the market is also maturing. So the premium soy sauce is like premium everything. So the mm -hmm. traditional industries that could be really shrinking, but they found new opportunities. So I'm glad you're introducing those people to, you know, beyond local market and also Japanese market. Yeah, I think it's, it's a wonderful, like you say, movement, um, because it was really in that style that we could have more distinction between regional flavors, you know, the soy made in Itoshima versus the soy made in Southern Kyushu. You know, so much of that flavor comes from the local, you know, microbes and, and environment. Um, mm. But when you're just using sterilized stainless steel, you're not going to get those differentiations. Right. Okay, so um, so you, the, to your, to participate in Mirukashi Salon, it can be anything like beginners of Japanese cuisine or... Uh, yeah, absolutely. To... Um, you don't have to be an expert. You don't have to know anything about it. I just hope that people are culinary enthusiasts, you know, that they're really curious and excited and have an adventurous palate. Um, so it's really for people who just want to dive deeply into the seasonal flavors, into the food culture, who want to roll up their sleeves and have a really hands-on experience. Um, that's really who I'm making the programs for. Mm, right. So um, and then uh, what would you like your tour guests to see in Mirukashi and what do you want them to take home, not just physically, but in their hearts? Yeah, I think um, the these programs really grow out of my love of the life that I've found there. And much of that for me is the joy of living kind of in tune with the seasons, you know, the shifting seasons. And so I really hope that what people bring home, if they get, you know, some cooking technique that they want to utilize at home, that's wonderful, or some introduction to new flavors that they could try at home. I think that's great. Um, but I really want them to go home just full of this spirit of living in tune with the seasons and really feel the joy of celebrating what each season has to offer. And that's in the, you know, the feel of the air, um, whether it's crisp in autumn or, you know, damp in spring and just being in tune with the ingredients that, that come out of those seasonal environments. So I hope that that's something that they feel while they're with me in Mirukashi and that they can continue to feel in their own environment when they get home. Mm, interesting. So, um, you know, everybody knows the Kyoto Kaisek cuisine, but sounds like there are a lot of seasons in Mirukashi too. Like, you know, Japanese um, famous 24 seasons, Niju um, Shiseki, mm -hmm. or like 72 seasons, Shichijuniko. Uh, right. So what kind of, do you see the seasonal ingredients? Like from now on, for example, October, what kind of ingredients do you see in Mirukashi? Yeah, so heading home at the end of October, we're really sort of launching into the height of the autumn season. Um, it'll be the rice harvest season, so we'll be getting shinmai, the new crop of rice, freshly harvested. Um, I'm sure I'll be going home to ginkgo nuts, which is one of my favorite autumn delicacies. Um, heading into a great season for eating all kinds of mushrooms. Um, in terms of foraging, we often... Um, I don't know if you're familiar with mukago, which is kind of this little potato tuber that grows on vines. We have them all over our neighborhood. So they're fun to gather and either fry up in some sesame oil or put into a pot of rice. 
Wow. Oh, you have mukago. That's exciting. You don't yeah, see that very, very often.、Rare. Yeah, wow. No, it's pretty rare. But、um, once you get attuned to what they are and where they grow, you'll find that they're just they're absolutely everywhere out in the countryside.、Mm, right. Okay. Well, that's a good point. You know, like ginkgo nuts.、Um, I mean, if you live in New York, some, some city planners made a mistake to plant female ginkgo trees. <laughs>、right. so、it's like all over the street and it stinks. But actual、yeah. good ginkgo nuts, a jade and like a you know, gem. So I do. I feel like I'm eating little jewels when I eat them.、Yeah. Right. And the color is just amazing.、Yeah. Right. Oh, wow. And、uh, also, of course,、uh, the shimai, the new fresh. Uh, harvest new freshly harvested rice is in my、mm-hmm. season. Yeah, oh wow, I'm jealous. I haven't been back to <laughs> Japan for a while, so it's been、yeah. hard to go. Yeah, so okay, and then, um, so how, um, you know, Mirukashi is something very special for you, but, um, I mean, being in a small village itself. Is important. Well, I really trying to see. Sounds like an amazing place. And compared to your hometown, what is、um, you know the Japanese-ness of Mirukashi or universal aspect of Mirukashi? Because it's such a great place, and I I think、mm-hmm. your tour must be really great. Yeah, I think it.、Um, I think that's one of the reasons it feels so exciting for me to live there, even after fifteen years. Is that It has a level of comfort and familiarity in terms of you know, distinct seasonal shifts, which of course New England does as well,、um, a country landscape that is quite agricultural based. So all of that feels very beautiful and very familiar to me.、Um, but I think what's distinctly Japanese about it and different,、uh, of course, are the particular you know, flora and fauna, the things that you're going to get there. The, We live very close to the ocean, so there's an incredible selection of fish, which is not something I grew up eating much of.、Um, and there's all kinds of fish in all kinds of seasons, it's constantly changing.、Um, and I think also, you know, foraging has become、uh, very interesting to people in the States as well more recently, but it wasn't when I was growing up.、Um, and that's something that I've learned to do. Uh, in Mirukashi, and again, because we're out in the countryside, there's a lot of land that's not in use, that's not built up. So it's really fun to head out in spring and collect all of these wild vegetables that are popping up here and there.、Mm, sounds very organic, too. <laughs> yes, <laughs> very natural, very wild. Right. Yeah.、Um, okay, but in terms of、uh, do you have any wild game or those、um, interesting meat as well? Um, actually, the meat mostly that we are eating is fish in terms of what's being harvested from the land.、Um, there's a little bit of game. Actually, I should say there's inoshishi, which is wild boar. That would be our main、um, wild meat, and, and it's absolutely incredible.、Um, yeah, so otherwise, it's mostly going to be a plethora of fish、mm, that we're、right. eating for meat. Yeah, I'm glad to hear Inoshishi,、uh, wild、yeah. boar. It must be really such a delicacy. So, it is, it's such a treat. Right. Okay. And uh, so, um, how has Mirukashi changed your life so far since you moved in to Mirukashi in 2007, 15 years ago? Well, what I would say is Mirukashi has really become my life. You know, everything is revolved around that. And that is. The daily life, you know, the way that I live in terms of being、um, very interested in cooking, very interested in the seasonal ingredients, taking time to collect fresh 
um, ingredients, taking the time to cook, to sit down and eat. Clearly, in a family of potters, we're, we're often using lots of different kinds of pottery. So there's a, a ritual to cooking and eating um, that I've learned in Mitakashi that I really love. And that's something that I've learned from my mother and father-in-law and have continued to practice myself. Um, so it's really living in tune with the subtle changes of season um, is what's so special to me about Mirukashi. And, and it's, it's something that I was aware of um, in terms of the four seasons of New England, but it's just become much richer, much more subtle, much more um, a lived experience as opposed to a conceptual idea. Mm, right. Oh, it's amazing. How many people are as lucky as you are, right? You can really live in rhythm of nature. And I'm sure you stay healthy because your mind is kind yeah. of a submission to natural power, right? You don't try to control. It's just the what you're given. Is... It is. Yeah, it is. It's really, you know, when you're planning a very special meal for someone and you know exactly what you want to make them, but you just can't get that ingredient that morning and you have to shift. And that's just, you know, it's the whims of nature and the climate and and that's fine. That's the way it should be. Mm, right. Well, I'm curious, do you use, uh, when you do all those uh, events and, you know, entertain people, do you use Hanako's um, products or your family products? Yeah, I mean, for the salon, we'll definitely have mostly Hanako's pottery to use. Of course, some pieces from other people in the family and, and pieces from, you know, other people, craftspeople that we like and have collected. Um, but I would say the bulk of it will be Hanako's wares. Mm, right. Well, it's interesting because I, I'd imagine the, all those um, serving vessels are made out of some clay locally um, provided. And uh, mm -hmm. it's just a reflection of whole terroir, right? Not just the food, but serving vessels are from the area and there's the mindset to design it. And yeah, I think it's really an amazing um, expression of the whole terroir. Of Absolutely. Yeah, and I think it's, for me, it was one of the fascinating aspects of, of the food culture in Japan is just how important the tableware is and the choice of tableware and how it matches the dishes that you've cooked. And even the tableware changes throughout the seasons based on, you know, you want something warm and um, comfortable in your hand in the winter, something that will transmit, you know, the temperature of a hot food. And then in the summer, you might like something made of glass that feels very cool and refreshing. Um, so the, the pottery, the tableware, that side of the whole food culture will be a very important part of our salon sessions. And um, we'll also get to eat, spend a morning with Hanako in her studio, learning more about her craft and her philosophy about making pottery for the table. Mm, amazing. Yeah, well, the changing um, plates uh, per season is a famous story of if you have a expensive Kyoto Kaiseki restaurant, mm -hmm. you have a warehouse to be able to accommodate right. a change of plates and, you know, any cups and everything. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it's a big deal. And I really think it's important what kind of um, plate and pots and, you know, it's really, a, it's not that just a background, but you feel um, what it is, is just a reflection of the season, which is, we don't we don't think too much in the States or many other places of the world, but in Japan, I think there's a respect to nature, which I think probably get, came from Shintoism or something, and really this mm -hmm. underlining respect to nature is such a Japanese cultural 
um, assumption about everything. So it is, and it's you know I think for me it's it brings so much meaning to a meal, and I really resonate with that and and love that aspect of it. You know that sitting down to a meal is not just nourishing your body, but it's um, giving thanks and and showing gratitude for the gifts you've received from nature, and also showing respect and gratitude for the craftspeople who have made the tableware. Um, so there's a there's a philosophical and a spiritual side to it um, that for me is very important, and I think it it deepens your relationship to the food when you keep that in mind and practice it. Mm, right. Yeah, you raised the two main keywords, respect and gratitude. There's always Japanese tables to mm-hmm. con- to main concepts, right? So right. right. Okay. Um, so what are your plans and dreams? <laughs> well, my plans are to go back to Japan on Sunday and hit the ground running. Um, we're going to launch the Mirokashi Salon season in 2023, starting in February. So we'll have six programs next year. Um, And my dream is really just to host as many people as possible and share these things that I love about Japan's food and flavor and um, a way of living and a way of approaching cooking and eating in the countryside. Mm, Right. Well, I am super curious. I I hope to see you in Birukashi one day. I would love to host you. Please come anytime. (laughs) Okay. So where can we find your updates online and on social media and also get the information on Mirukashi Salon? Yeah, so the whole program, including all of the the different seasonal itineraries and details about what the activities and menus might be for each one of those are on my website. And the website is mirukashi.life. And mirukashi is M-I-R-U-K-A-S-H-I dot life. And then I am on Instagram at Mirukashi Salon. Awesome. Yeah, I like the Mirukashi dot life. That sounds like a very uh, representative uh, web rather than dot com. Yes, yeah. Right. It definitely represents what I'm trying to express and share with people. Right. Great. Okay, so, uh, well, good luck on your Thank trip you back so home. Much. And also this Mirukashi Salon, I think is a great idea for not just for, you know, for yours, project, but for, I think, the whole community of Mirukashi. So good luck. Thank you so much. And thank you for the opportunity to chat today. Great. So uh, yeah, of course, thank you for joining us today, Prairie. So listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for show topics or guests, please contact us at japaneeds at heritageradionetwork.org or akikokatema.com. Japaneeds is a weekly program and always available at heritageradionetwork.org app.org, as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. Our engineer is Armin Spenjan, and thank you for listening. I will see you next week. Japan Eats is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.